The views and opinions expressed on the Poor Ass Podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of BME Recovery Content Productions. Any content provided by our guests are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. And on that note, enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I have a new website. Go to www.poraspodcast.com for episodes. That's www.poraspodcast.com. So if you hear vcomedy.com, that is the old website. Go to www.poraspodcast.com for episodes and enjoy the show thanks for listening thanks for supporting bye hi everyone welcome to another episode of poor ass podcast where we talk about tough shit on a budget i have a special guest so excited to have him sam Wilkie. I'm, did I say your last name right? <laughs> I you forgot. said it perfectly. Wilkie. Okay. Sam Wilkie. And he is has a PhD from Berkeley in chemical engineering. His career was in um, data, data. He was a data scientist in San Francisco. He dabbled in comedy and that's actually where I met him. I met him at the San Francisco Comedy College for uh, a little bit back over uh, 10 years ago. It's probably like 2009. Correct me if I if I'm oh, wrong on correct. that one. Okay, 2009, and continued in his industry in uh, date in the data scientific field until he retired, and he splits his time between Hawaii, San Francisco, Colorado, San Diego. I think you close, told me San Diego. Close, uh, mostly Hawaii, Southern California, so not so much the Bay uh-huh. Area anymore, and uh-huh. Idaho. Idaho, cool. Idaho. And, Cool. And since then, he has um, invested invested his free time in helping people reshape their uh, relationship to their money. And in his own personal journey of healing emotionally, and we will we will go into that more deeply. So this topic is uh, all the feel all the feels talking about emotional budgets. And uh, Sam, we're, uh, Sam and I are Facebook friends, and I put a post that I'm producing several topics um, relating to the pandemic and emotional health, emotional bro- budgets was one of the topics. And Sam reached out to me, and we've had some pretty in- in-depth, insightful conversations on his own personal journey. And I really wanted to have him on the podcast. So thank you so much for being on the podcast to, to talk about this. And uh, tell tell me a little bit more on what led you to explore more, more deeply in your own personal emotional health. Well, first of all, thanks, Veronica, for having me. This is definitely a subject that is near and dear to my heart uh, because I do think how we feel and our emotions drive so much of our decision-making, much more so than our logical brain and rational thinking. You know, I think most of my life I just assumed I was making these logical, rational decisions, and now I'm much more convinced that I'm making decisions largely based on feeling and emotion. And because of that, I wanted to uh, check out my relationship to my feelings. And in my 30s, I would have always thought I was such an independent person. And I went to a workshop one weekend with a bunch of psychologists and therapists. And in that workshop, I realized, oh my gosh, I am very codependent. Mm-hmm. And it was, in specifically, it was, I needed people not to be angry with me. 
and I didn't realize that was codependent, um, but it is very codependent if you need people to feel a certain way for you to be okay. And I really needed people not to feel angry around me. Um, it was okay if they directed that anger elsewhere, but if it was directed at me, it, it was something that I largely had a problem with. Um, so that's what first got me started in being interested in a healthier relationship with emotions was just realizing that I had this very unhealthy relationship to some emotions and I wasn't aware of that. And once I became aware, it was very exciting to look into healing that uh, emotional trauma and getting to a much healthier relationship to a specific feeling I had. And how, how did you connect to your emotional trauma or have the awareness that you were traumatized? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so that was not an overnight realization. So I'm not quite sure where I can put a thumb on where it came to be, but I'll just walk into the example of my own personal experience. As a child, my father uh, had a lot of rage at times and he would be very upset clearly. And sometimes his behavior would be uh, pretty unacceptable. I think in modern terms, he would, he would beat us. And I don't mean spanking in a disciplinary action. I mean, he was raging, he was out of control, and he would be beating uh, my brother and my sisters and myself. And in that time, as a young kid, he seemed very powerful to me. And during his rage, you know, I, th I thought, oh, the anger is the problem. I didn't realize his behavior was the problem. And I couldn't separate his rage and anger from his actions. I thought they were all, you know, one thing, which is angry. And my own side of it was when he would beat me, I would go numb. You know, I could tell that I was being hit, but I, I didn't really feel it um, in the way that, you know, like when you're numbed up on Novocaine, you kind of can tell people are doing stuff, but you can't quite feel it in the same way. And so that's how I'd experience being beat. I also would feel like I was very expansive and weightless and like I was falling out of my body into the infinite universe. And so that was the feeling I had. Mm -hmm. And in this work that I did with um, different people through these workshops and through therapy, uh, you know, I started to realize, wait a second, I love those feelings. Those are great feelings. A lot of people take drugs to feel those feelings. And so it wasn't the feelings that I disliked. It was the trauma, the connection of those feelings to those past things that I was really terrified of. And it's one of those things that's easier said than done is to recognize there's nothing wrong with those feelings. And so I was trying to create a healthier relationship to those feelings so that as an adult, instead of having to respond to those feelings like I did as a child, I could actually start to just allow myself to feel those feelings because there's nothing wrong with those feelings. As long as I'm in a safe environment, it's okay to feel them. And my reactions as a child uh, were perfectly valid. I would try to manage my dad's um, feelings. I'd try to calm him down. So that's the codependence. Uh, I would try to make myself small or I would try to get away or, um, you know, in some way try to calm him down. Those were my childish responses. And as an adult, those responses actually worked just fine, right? So if someone got angry with me, I would kind of avoid them or I'd try to talk them out of their anger and there's nothing wrong with that. So society wasn't telling me, Sam, there's something unhealthy about you. Um, but what a bummer if you are dating someone and you can never, you're never allowed to get angry with them. So I, mm. you know, <laughs> what an impossible person to date I must have been. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was through a lot of work that I started to realize, wait, okay, my girlfriend is mad at me, but she's not going to beat me. So I can actually forget about for a moment, you know, what's going on with my thoughts and ideas. And I can just allow myself to feel these feelings of weightlessness and like I'm falling out of my body into the infinite universe and numb and a little bit of tingly and definitely some adrenaline. I can allow myself to feel those things and connect it to the present moment, which is often beautiful, right? Like if, if someone's opening up to you that they're angry with you, what a gift, you know, it's easy to tell someone you love them and you love everything about them. It's a lot harder to let someone know, Hey, there's this thing about you that's really bothering me. And so what a gift for someone to come to me 
with a very challenging for them to do thing. And it gives me an opportunity to have this feeling that I'm trying to create a healthier relationship to. And I might even connect that feeling now to some deeper connection with this person who's opening up to me. So I would say that that journey took, um, I think, several years. And, you know, I'm a work in progress. So, of course, I'm still working on this. But I definitely do feel like I've healed that trauma to the extent now that, Veronica, let's say you and I were having a conversation and you got really angry with me, far from me being upset about it or thinking I needed to calm you down, I would allow myself to feel my feelings and I would connect it to the present moment and try to tune into whatever you're going through and try to understand what you're trying to communicate to me and what's going on. And so to me, that's, that's the gift of having that, a healthier relationship to that specific feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this was like, uh, several years in, in the making, um, and for those who are listening or developing aware, awareness about their, your own personal budgets, I, I will have to say that it, it, does, it does take time. And, um, and you did mention you had a girlfriend and you would be dating, da- dating, dating women in, in this, the emotional paradigm that you were in, like, you know, you don't want people to be angry with you. Did you find, did you find your awareness increased when you're more in a relationship or more when you were single? Uh, well, as an adult, I had an eight-year relationship and two five-year relationships. So I've mostly been in long-term relationships. And uh, it's it's hard to know where I made the most gains because um, even within a relationship, because of my lifestyle of traveling, I'm often have alone time for a month or two at a time, mm-hmm. even if I'm in a relationship where we're doing the long distance thing. Um, but certainly it's easier for me to work on certain things when I'm alone. But the wonder of being in a relationship is that person might be providing for you exactly what you need, which is to be triggered to those feelings so that you can start to have a healthier relationship to them and you can do it yourself. So from, in my case, all I had to do was remember those traumatic events and just think about those in my mind. And those would bring back a rush of feeling for me, but then I could only connect that feeling to the present moment where it's just me alone in a room sort of meditating. Whereas with a partner, I get triggered to those feelings and then I get to actually relate it to some interesting, engaging experience with that other person. And so that's something I couldn't do on my own. Uh, that, that is something where I needed another person involved. Mm, mm, interesting. And during, during this time, I know one of the things that we talked about was uh, push, pushing yourself outside your, your comfortable, your, your comfort zone and, and how you are now compared to how you were then, how has your emotional budget increased, re- remained the, sta- the same and, and, and what, what does it look like? What does an emotional budget look like for you personally when interacting with others in relationship or just um, day to day? Oh, great question. And I'm going to bring it back to where I got some of these ideas from, which is a book called The Power of Full Engagement. And they talk about most people understand that your physical health is a balancing act between um, sort of breaking your body down through exercise and then allowing it to recover and rebuild through, um, you know, recovery time. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to just constantly tearing your body down. You don't want to just exercise 20 hours a day, but also, um, you don't want to be resting too much either. If you're just resting all the time, that's also not very good for your physical health. So it's this balancing act of sort of pushing yourself past comfort while you're exercising and then allowing yourself to recover. And that same book suggests that for our mental health and our emotional health, uh, the same ideas apply that pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. So let's talk about your mental health. That might be, you know, pushing yourself to study hard for a test and that act of studying hard and then taking the test helps, you know, build your mental 
capabilities even further. So you have a better, a bigger mental budget where you can do more things. Um, but then you also need to recover. You can't just be stressing your mind all the, all your waking hours. You do need some time to sort of relax. And emotionally speaking, uh, I do feel like I have really built an emotional budget from the perspective of, um, getting to a place where I feel like I can allow myself to feel pretty much any emotion. And of course, like let's say someone were really angry with me and they were about to punch me or they had a knife or a gun and they were going to shoot me. Well, in that case, you know, being emo- like tuning into my emotions and connecting that to the present, that's not a very good response. Like a much better response is my childish response of like, get the heck out of there, get away mm-hmm. from the danger. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if that's not the case, if I'm not being threatened and if it's just an environment that's safe, but I, my body thinks it's unsafe, I think that's a place where I've made a lot of progress in understanding, okay, these are emotions. I can feel them and I can allow myself to be present with them and be present in this moment as opposed to some past trauma. Um, so I think my emotional budget has grown tremendously in the last 15 years where I don't really think there are emotions I fear or want to get away from. And another example is frustration. A lot of people don't want to experience frustration, whereas I feel like frustration is an important part of any experience where you're trying to get better at something. Um, So let's take a sport, since most people can relate to that. If you're trying to get better at any sport, as a part of that process, you're going to experience frustration. Usually when you can't quite figure something out or when you think you already know how to do something and you don't do it as well as you think you can, frustration usually pops in at one of those moments. And to me, now I associate frustration as like part of this process of getting better. And I think you talked about this um, during our phone call the other day where there's you know, kind of the reward at the end of that process is something, uh, what did you call it? Just triumphant or success, or I can't remember the word you used. Uh, serenity, I think, or I forgot. <laughs> That's okay. I forgot I mean, myself. You just, oh. you just talked about this, this absolute joy of triumph at the end of something. And to me, far from thinking frustration is a bad thing. Now I love feeling frustrated, even though it's still uncomfortable for me. It's like, yes, Sam, you are pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. You are trying to do something that you can't do very well. And frustration is a part of that process. And to me, that's built a huge emotional budget because I, I can handle frustration a lot more than I could say in my twenties. Yeah. And, and specifically as a guy, as a guy, and, and where, it's like, where are the examples? Where, where are the other male examples on how to process emotions? And, you know, uh, with, with women, with, it's, there, in my experience, there's an in, inheritness just being a woman that my emotions are there. And, you know, I've had, I grew up in an alcoholic home too, and, and processing my emotions wasn't um, appropriate in some, in depending on, on the, on the situation, but the inheritness of, you know, I, I had my sister, we would talk, I had my mom, we would talk like women banding together to talk about our feelings, whether they're in re- recovery or not in recovery, there's like this inherentness of, of we come together. And when we go through a breakup, we go to our girlfriends. If something's going on, we go to our, our sisters or our friends, like regardless of there's dysfunction, there's, there's always that like female bond, not to say that it's there with males, but like what has been perpetuated generationally is, you know, men don't cry. Um, you know, we process our trauma through violence and that's the narrative and the practice. And so, 
Sam hears you, a guy who who has come from childhood trauma and and abuse. This could have gone either way. You could have been another guy to just continue the abuse to to others. So in some ways, it's like there's no rhyme and reason. But here 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 you are, you know, a pretty cool guy, decent guy, just you know, uh, trying to ch- to heal. So do you? Do you see yourself as an example? An example? You're on like, oh, there's a guy that could keep it together. Like maybe I could talk to him. You know, you know what I'm saying? Are you asking if I have um, male friends who I talk about my feelings with? Yes. Absolutely. It's it's one of my top five favorite discussion points. Uh, so I love getting into why does the universe exist. So that's a very fun topic for me. <laughs> I love talking about the ideas of quantum physics and the multiverses and can talk about that. And the other side of this life, like I said before, I think most of our decision-making comes from a place of feeling and emotion. And so it's this incredibly rich source of discussion topics for me. And um, yeah, absolutely. I don't see gender differences from the perspective of like who I'm willing to talk to my to about my feelings I'm just as happy to engage talking about my feelings with a male friend as a female friend. So I don't see um, any difference there. But yes, it's definitely one of my favorite subjects to talk about is feelings. Cool. I'm just thinking about those who... I'm thinking about the demographic, the male demographic who maybe is not aware or that they're processing emotions in a negative way or it has been brought up and they're like, no, I don't have a problem. Like that, that denial, that constant denial until like, you know, uh, they hit their personal bottom, whatever, whatever that, that, that looks, looks like. Um, That looks kind of an interesting way for me. I would definitely say I had anger issues, but not in the way you would guess by hearing that phrase. Mm. So my anger issues, uh, you know how they talk about sometimes characteristic traits jump a generation. Mm. So like you might pick up characteristic traits from your grandfather, but not from your father or, you know, your grandmother, Mm. not your mother. And my anger issue was that if I ever felt anger, I, imme- I thought anger was a bad thing because remember I had it associated with my dad's bad behavior and I didn't know there was a difference between anger and how you behave when you're angry. And so I just thought anger was a bad emotion. And so anytime I felt anger, I immediately intellectualized, intellectualized myself out of it, meaning I would think, oh my gosh, I'm blessed with this amazing life and in the big scheme of things, what just happened is no big deal and there's nothing to be angry about. Mm. And I don't want to throw that coping mechanism under the bus. I think there's a lot of times where it's totally helpful and appropriate. And certainly our society rewards it because if you're never angry, you know, society's like, oh, you're an awesome person. Mm. And so until I was 30 something, I really had very few examples where I would get angry. And almost all of those examples, I would intellectualize myself out of it pretty quickly. And now I see how unhealthy that was because there's nothing wrong with feeling angry. If you know, if you see some social injustice, you're going to get angry. If you read the news today, it's almost impossible to not get angry. And there's nothing wrong with anger as a feeling. It's just one of our many human emotions. It's just unfortunate that males often are so powerful and that when they feel angry, they often do bad behavior that unfortunately really can hurt other people physically, uh, emotionally, just in so many ways, it's almost like someone's just a, becomes a horrible tyrant when they're angry. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately, we see lots of cases where anger is combined with poor behavior. And in my yeah. 30s, I started allowing myself to feel angry and realizing, wait, this feeling is actually a, an ally. It's a friend. It's, a, it's, it's something that will allow me to make huge changes in my life. And I started realizing pretty quickly that when I allowed myself to be angry, I didn't have bad behavior. Um, And I'm so glad I did this because I do think if I had had a son and I hadn't done this work, then maybe that anger thing I told you about would have skipped a generation where, you know, my son would be so upset that I never allowed myself to get angry that maybe they would have kind of my dad's relationship to anger where they acted horribly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's another way of perpetuating a cycle is I was going so overboard in the other direction that maybe my offspring might have been like, oh, dad's never angry. And, you know, to rebel, they allow themselves to behave poorly when they're angry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to emotional buzz, uh, budgets and how it relates to uh, forgiveness. Now, you did you did tell me that your father did pass away, but when he was alive and alive and you're you're an adult or during the time he was he was alive was did that ever come into this the scene in forgiving the trauma or forgiving your dad that's an interesting question i don't think i ever had resentment towards him you know Mm. as a kid i was actually grateful that he was a good disciplinarian so he would you know let's not talk about the rage for a second he would put in a consequence and say, if you do this again, here's the consequences. And then he would enforce those consequences. So he was very rational and great in that disciplinarian way. And I was so grateful for that, that I think I sort of just, and he stopped doing the rage thing when I think I turned 14 ish. And so luckily it was one of those things that just sort of went away Mm. and I didn't really connect how it was affecting me. So I don't think I had any animosity And other than, you know, the one belt buckle to the face time that, you know, did kind of mess me up a little bit. Other than that, you know, the beatings were just scary, but they weren't harmful from a physical perspective. I mean, just, you know, some bruising, but nothing like no broken bones or twisted anything. Um, So I don't think I had like maybe my subconscious had a lot of resentment. That's certainly possible. Um, But I just found myself being really grateful because, yeah, my dad had this one quality that was definitely negative, right? And he had some other issues, like he he was pretty bad with finances. Um, so, th- you know, he had a couple of issues. But heck, for a guy who started having kids when he was fairly young and had four kids, like I'm mm-hmm. amazed at all the things that he did uh, really, really well. Mm-hmm. And so far from focusing on the the two areas where he definitely did not perform very well, I found myself a lot more focused on like the millions of things that he seemed to just be incredible at. And I'm just very grateful. And yeah, he was, (laughs) he was making it up as he went as I think a lot of parents do. And uh, I'm just surprised at how many things he, he did really incredibly well. Um, So I don't think I had a sense of resentment. And um, to me, anytime I forgive someone, I realize I'm actually helping myself if that Mm. makes any sense. No. Yeah. 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 Holding resentment holding resentment towards someone, I feel like that hurts me and that letting go of that resentment helps, helps me. And it doesn't mean I'm letting that person back into my life. Like, you know, if, if you've got someone who's um, abused you in some bad way, it doesn't mean you're inviting that abuse back into your life. So I don't mean forgiveness equals bring them back in. Um, but certainly forgiveness can look a lot of ways where you just forgive someone for being who they are but still have boundaries about allowing them into your life. So I don't mean forgiveness in the sense that, oh yeah, you're welcome back into my life and bring the abuse back. I don't mean that at all. Um, But to me, forgiveness is such a natural thing because I think resentment only hurts me if I resent someone. And so that forgiveness is just like an acknowledgement. Oh my gosh, you, you are created the way you are and you exist the way you are and you've done these horrible things and I forgive you for doing those things because that's who you were in that moment. Um, but that's not the same as saying, Hey, you're welcome back in my life with your abusive mm. crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, that's a def- definitely re- reoccurring topic in the recovery community that I'm in. Forgiveness is for, for, for me, it's letting go of the pain. And these are the, this is deep shit. This is like goes to the core. Um, I, I'm a firm believer. Like if I am not, processing unprocessed trauma, it will spill into my emotional budget and how I relate to people and my relationships and whether it's with my brother or my sister, um, potential dating. Um, speaking of which, this is another interesting topic that we talked about, um, emotional budgets, your healing. I, okay. I'll speak from my experience. So I've discovered 
since the years I've been in recovery and doing the inventory work and especially on the emotional, my perspective in monogamy has, has changed because my, I, I do feel like my emotional budget has, has expanded and appropriately to par- participate and engage with people who are able to participate back. But on that note, uh, before getting to, into my recovery work, like my emotional budget was very, very small. So I was very much like monogamy, one person forever, but you know, 15 years in recovery, my perspective and definition has def- definitely changed in that perspective. Like, I don't know if I could be with just one person, like maybe a primary person, but like my emotional needs are so great. Like I need, like I need to be in, in various relationships, not necessarily sexual, but I've discovered that I like, I'm comfortable having sex with just one person, but I may need more than one emotional boyfriend, whatever that, that looks like. And that's, that's just where I'm at. I don't know if it's going to play out successfully, but just coming into terms and, and, and acceptance of like, what does, what is Veronica's emotional needs? And it's not matching to a paradigm or what I'm supposed to be in, if that makes sense. Do you, do you, did you experience something similar in your emotional health and growth? Well, there's a lot for me to address in what you just said. (laughs) Uh, I want to talk about multiple things. One, during my comedy uh, days, you know, comedy is about talking about what's important to you. If you just want to tell jokes, I don't think you're going to be that interesting to an audience for very long because people don't go to a comedy show to hear jokes. They might think they're going to a comedy show to hear jokes, but they're really going to hear your perspective and your opinions. And of course, they want to laugh along the way. But most good comedians have a good old fashioned rant here and there. Or, you know, someone like Dave Chappelle, he can spend a full 15 minutes talking about social uh, issues without a single joke in there. He'll throw a joke or two in there. But really, he's talking about social issues and people want to hear that. And something that was important to me to talk about is this idea that I don't think I can meet a woman's wants and needs, but I want her to have all her needs and wants met. So I think it's preposterous that we as a society keep pushing this agenda that I somehow have to be everything to a woman I'm dating. And I would much rather her get whatever wants and needs taken care of that I'm not that interested in. And an example I come to is, you know, I've traveled so much in my life. And with my lifestyle of splitting my time between three places, I'm not really looking much to travel anymore. But most women my age really want to travel. And my thought is, well, go travel and try to find the best travel person you possibly can. And if you have an intimate, beautiful connection to that travel partner, even better, because that's allowing you to travel and also have this wonderful, beautiful, intimate connection with someone. And I don't begrudge that. I celebrate it. So I think... Mm. Yeah, have all your needs and wants met and, you know, no guarantees that that we'll be able to continue dating if, if you end up kind of being with that other person and wanting to just be monogamous with them. Then, of course, you know, that breaks what we have up. But if everyone's open to it, I don't see why it's automatic that, oh, OK, now I'm with this other guy, so I can't be with you. So to me, that's preposterous. I think a, a, a healthier for me, at least, and for a lot of people Um, way to think about it is that it's okay to have less clearly defined boundaries with everyone and that to be more present in the moment um, might lead to some connections that you weren't expecting, but that maybe are healthy. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely support this idea of uh, someone I'm dating being with many, many different people in many different ways and, and finding whatever support they want uh, whatever support they need through not just me, but also through other humans. And it doesn't, I don't care about the gender and I don't care about the level of connectivity. And to bring it back around to what you were talking about, you don't necessarily need physical, physicality with other men, but you do want emotional connection with other men. Mm-hmm. 
I, I wanted to address that by saying a lot of, um, you know, polls show that some people think a physical affair is worse than an emotional affair. And other people think an emotional affair is actually worse than a physical affair. Mm-hmm. And I think they're both wonderful. Like not an affair where you're lying. I don't mean that, but an affair where, oh my gosh, I had this wonderful connection with this other human who's not you. I, I love that idea. Oh my gosh, that means you're exploring your emotional needs and wants and, you know, in your terms, emotional budget. You're exploring your emotions with this other human who's not me. Wonderful. That's only going to help your connection with me, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so far from being upset about it and thinking, oh my gosh, how, come, how could you ever connect with another human emotionally besides me? I mean, to me, that's such a ridiculous thought. And I get it that that is stuck in our collective consciousness as a society right now. I mean, we just are force-fed this idea of monogamy and forever after and just you and me um, forever and no one else. And, oh, my God, how could you ever be attracted to anyone else now that we're together? What a horrible person. I think that stuff is all so toxic personally and so poisonous and yet so accepted. It's Mm -hmm. so fundamentally accepted that Mm -hmm. even talking about it will really upset some people. Like just discussing it really triggers people to some pretty gnarly stuff. So I get it that I'm kind of in the um, minority from the perspective of someone who's open to talking about it. And I also would be willing to accept that maybe my, my way of thinking is just unique to me and that other people have a healthy version for them. I certainly say, think some people are wired for monogamy and that's you know more power to them. But I do think for you know, I think it's reasonable to assume a lot of us are actually not wired for monogamy and we're just trying to force ourselves into it because that's what society tells us is the right way to do it. Just like gender, you know, there are some people who are born kind of in the middle of gender and they don't identify with the gender. They don't identify with one or the other and yet they're Mm -hmm. forced to pick one. It's like, you got to pick a team, you know, you can't Uh just be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And And I'm so glad that we're pushing that thinking into the mainstream consciousness of, hey, gender fluidity is real. Some people don't need to identify as a man or a woman. That's not important to them. Like they don't have to pick a team. Uh, They don't even have to think there are teams. You know, it's okay. And I think the same with monogamy versus openness is, you know, you're born and you just sort of assume you have to pick, oh, I, I have to be monogamous or else I'm this awful person. And, uh, you know, I hope to live in a society where we continually relax those ideas um, that, hey, maybe it's actually perfectly healthy to want to be in an open relationship and to celebrate your partner being with other people in an emotionally connecting or intimate or even physical way. Yeah, I, I, there's a book that I'm reading, The State of Affairs by um, Esther Perel. Her, yeah, Perel. She also has a podcast on uh, on Apple Podcasts. How's How's work and How's work and the other one that I'm following. I'm going to my phone. So yeah, How's work with Esther Perel and and the, she has another one. Uh, where should we begin? So where should we begin? Uh, she takes a couple and she uh, goes through a therapy session with the couple and how's work examines working relationship. They're both very excellent, but Esther's uh, Perel's book, the state of affairs is a very prolific examination of the state of affairs. Like, you know, going into more deeper, you know, why, why women cheat, why men cheat, people cheat when they're happy. She even goes, goes into to that. It's such like, and she covers a wide range of, of topics. And, you know, it just really sparked the conversation of bringing that taboo of infidelity and, and cheating into a candid, open, back and forth con- conver- conversation on you know, what, what does it mean to be in, in relationship. I really enjoy the book and, um, it does tie into emotional budgets and even this, the subject of emotional budgets in, you know, being open, you know, 
you have what you've shared, like personally, you hope that your partner's needs is met and you might fulfill some of them and you, and, and you might not like what I'm hearing. And like, that's coming from an authentic place. And I think that's the difference that I like would like to explore. Like these to be really open to allow your partner to be with another person. Like you have to be solid yourself. It can't be just like something that I say or I don't really mean, or I just want to say it because it's the nice thing to say. It, 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 that has to be your own authentic truth. Like even in my own experience, what, where I came from, you know, coming to term to terms and awareness of with my own personal emotional budget, like, yeah, I'm comfortable I'm comfortable sleeping with just one person, but I will have, I, I do require multiple emotional relationships, whatever that mean. And it means to me and like have that transparent conversation with my future primary partner, whoever, whoever that is, is going to be and like, you know, stick with it. I remember we were talking about like you had your profile, your profile, your online profiles and your profile dating profiles would say like open and, or people, or women would answer it and not take you seriously or like, Oh, you're just saying that or like, and, and how, how do you navigate that? Poorly. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think the example I gave gave to you, (laughs) there was a time where my, um, I used OkCupid and the first line of it, you know, in OkCupid, one nice thing about it is you can put a few like really important details right at the beginning. And, you know, I had non-monogamy. And the reason for that is just to filter out anyone who is like obsessed with monogamy, which is a vast majority of people. Right. Like if someone's looking to date a man, they don't want to date a non-monogamous man. Like that's just a fact. Right. And I would love to see that fact change. But right now, most women are looking for a monogamous man or a man who's saying he wants to be monogamous. And the first line of my description where I can write my own thing, I had written if um, if monogamy is a really important concept to you, please swipe left if you're not willing to talk about or think about ideas about non-monogamy, please swipe left. Like just very clearly, like please swipe left if this is Mm -hmm. a deal breaker for you, which it is Mm -hmm. for most people. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to filter out most people who are really, really glued to the idea of monogamy. And I went on a date with this woman and it was very clear within the first 10 minutes, she didn't read my profile. She must've selected based on my pictures and height because those were Mm -hmm. the important things to her at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I had the education and, you know, I think I checked some boxes when it comes to dating profiles, like, you know, educated, uh, good job, you know, photos looked okay and height, you know, those are the typical boxes that some, some people choose to check and, uh, or, or choose to look at. And we ended up dating for five years and really it was the open versus closed that seemed to be the deal breaker. And, Mm. you know, I, I kind of feel like to some extent we wasted, I mean, I really, she was an amazing woman. We had this great relationship and it was almost entirely monogamous. And the few bumps into like an openness when she was with someone else, I think that went well. But in my case where I had connected with another human, um, you know, even just spending time, it was like such a big deal. And it, it definitely created some really gnarly situations uh, emotionally. And, you know, I was, um, so I, I, I guess I would say I navigated that poorly, uh, but I was very open from day one. Like within 10 minutes of that date, I was very clear with her, hey, this is a very important thing. And she said at that time that she was interested in exploring it and talking about it. Um, but I, I think that ultimately, uh, it was something that was just too hardcore for her to to work with, and uh, understandably so. Like I think most people are just just cannot fathom you wanting to have a relationship with someone else in addition to them. So I don't want to take anything away from her. The fact that she's wired like most people are wired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is hardcore. Like even thinking about it, it like blows your mind, and then actually practicing it, it like blows your mind even, even more because we're, we're human. Like I remember, I remember, um, you know, bad feelings, good feelings. Like 
as open as I am and the more I grow and heal in my emotional budget for, for me, like I, like jealousy was huge for me in early recovery and it still rears its ugly head like time to time. But like, like before I even did the emotion, the emotion, to even start the emotional work. Like je- jealousy was like huge. It, it was like a made one of the principal actors. Uh, so I, I am just reflecting back. Like, so monogamy and how I viewed monogamy, I felt like would protect me from being jealous if it were just, you know, and that didn't work. And so so now I'm at this place of where I'm comfortable having sex with just one person. But yeah, I, I will, I do need more than one male emotional relationship with another male. But so that, that is true for me, but I find that jealousy is still like peaks. It, it's like a peak, not really like a major player, not even like a cameo more. It's more like a background, background fuzzy act actor but it's still it's still there like how how have you personally managed how jealousy is tied into your own emotional budget okay that's awesome i'm so glad you asked that first of all <laughs> jealousy to me is a lot of different feelings so jealousy is more of a concept and then there's a lot of feelings you feel when you're when you're jealous mm-hmm. um, so i don't think of jealousy as a feeling as much as a concept that has a lot of feelings. And personally, I love jealousy. And let me, <laughs> let me explain. You know, awesome. It That's is awesome. awesome. You're like, uh, I love everything. Give me all the feels. <laughs> well, okay, let go me, on, go on. This is a, something you can relate to. So anyone who performed in a play in say middle school or high school knows what it's like where when you're in the wings before you go on stage, so you're kind of behind the curtain still and you're about to go on, and there's this adrenaline rush. And the adrenaline, when it goes into your system, it causes your hands to shake. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of other things that happen. Adrenaline is a pretty powerful internal feeling. And I think a majority of the population, when they feel that, they think, oh my God, I've got stage fright. And then once you get on stage, that stage fright calms down and you sort of go into your actor mode or actress mode and you you know you engage with whatever that is going on with the acting or the singing or you know, whatever form of entertainment you're doing, maybe you're, maybe you're giving a speech. But anyway, that adrenaline can kind of calm down. But before you get on stage, you have this adrenaline rush. And I think a small fraction of the population get gets that same feeling, exact same adrenaline, your hands are shaking. And you think, oh my God, I love this feeling. How exciting. <laughs> like, it's really intense, but you feel alive, right? You feel alive when adrenaline is coursing through your veins and your hands are shaking and your heart's racing and, you know, there's so much and you're sweating and mm-hmm. your armpits are sweating and you're nervous. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's alive. I love that feeling. And certainly you are a performer, so there's some part of you that probably connects to that feeling in some positive way. And so that's what I mean when I love jealousy. Like, yeah, it's not comfortable, all the feelings I have when I'm feeling or when I'm thinking about jealous thoughts. Uh, but ultimately the feelings I feel alive and I really love them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are intense. I, I don't, mm-hmm. for you, it sounds like jealousy is sort of taking a backseat for me. It's definitely a, the main player in anything related to openness. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I love the feeling. Um, so for anyone who hates feelings, of jealousy or feelings when they have jealous thoughts, you know, maybe the open thing is a bad idea because for me, it's like a natural thing because I love those feelings. And so if someone I'm dating is having some emotional or wonderful connection with a man, yeah, I'm probably going to feel intensely jealous. And at the same time, I'm going to be like processing that in some way that I think is like alive and, and um, invigorating. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really what what came up to me as you were sharing was like um you know being open is important but the jealousy is it's like comes with the territory and it's going to happen like it's going to happen the and it's like 
it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, but when those jealous waves happen, like, okay, I got the tools and that's, and that's kind of like the key of this overarching like topic, like, uh, go get your tools. And like, what are those, what are those tools for, for you when jealousy strikes? Yeah. And for me, I, I want to feel those feelings and everyone I've dated wants to be monogamous. So I end up not really getting to taste those feelings that I really enjoy. Um, and that's, you know, that's my own personal, uh, experience, but it's something I invite. And so for me, when I date someone, I let them know from day one, like, Hey, I, I liked, I like the feelings of jealousy and it's not cuckolding. Um, mm-hmm. cuckolding is a term. I'm not sure how many people are familiar with it. It's, it's basically where a husband, um, gets sexual, uh, excitement and arousal at being degraded by another man who is mm. superior to him. And I don't have any connection to a degradation or wanting to think a man is superior to me. I don't have that. So mm-hmm. if you're, you know, if you're listening, if you're listening to this and your mind went that route, that's not at all what I'm connected to. And, um, it's more so just, I like the feelings that come with jealousy and I invite, uh, someone I'm dating to get all their needs and wants met. Some of them through me and some of them through other people. And I just think to me, that's like such a healthier life experience where you're going to get what you want. Or if you're not getting what you want, you can go ahead and change things so that you are without limiting yourself to how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, We're coming toward, towards the end. We got like 10 minutes, 10 minutes left. Um, What, what else? So are you, oh, are you single or are you dating? I am currently dating. And with this, is it a new, new relationship or, uh, or a couple years? It's kind of a multiple relationship. It's, uh, I'm dating a woman, but also her dog in the sense that I love (laughs) caring for her dog. We've, (laughs) we've been together for a year and a half now and I'm just madly in love with her dog. Um, and we, we often joke that, that I, she often says, you're just dating me to get to my dog. And of course there's zero truth to that, but, uh, <laughs> it is fun to joke about. But yeah, we've been dating for about a year and a half and, um, that relationship has gone quite well. Um, but she's been very clear that like the open thing is not something available to her. Um, that she, uh, doesn't want to prevent me from having the life that I want um, but that she herself has zero interest in connecting with other people emotionally or physically. Um, and so that's just where she is. And I don't push things and I don't think that um, it's healthy to try to convince someone to do something they're not wired to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so she knows that about me, that if, if that were something she changed her mind about, she could certainly pursue it. Uh, but she's been very clear that that's just not something that she's interested in. Mm-hmm. So I must subconsciously be drawn to to uh women who are just very monogamously oriented (laughs) relationships are tricky i mean as long as you know know yourself and what you what you know and it's there um you know there's no manipulation to be something that you aren't i mean you're having a good time that's what matters right yeah. And, you know, I want to make it clear, like that word manipulation, I, I like that word. And I think there's a vi- big difference between speaking your truth and being clear about your wants, your desires, your needs, your dreams, your goals. Speaking those things is not the same as manipulating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think some people do get kind of confused that if you speak your dreams or what you want out of life, they think you're manipulating them. And it's like, no, that's to, to not speak your truth would be a form of manipulation in my opinion. Mm. And, you know, manipulation definitely is a big part of our life experience. And, and, uh, I've seen manipulation. I've met people who are manipulative, but I think speaking your own wants and desires is not in and of itself manipulation, quite the opposite. It's speaking your truth and letting someone know what you want and what you desire and what you need. Um, and then, then it's up to them if they want to be a part of that. And they don't have to be. I mean, just because I say, you know, just because someone tells me they want to travel to Morocco doesn't mean I have to go to Morocco with them. It just means they want to go to Morocco. 
And so that's not manipulative to say they want to go to Morocco. But if they keep slipping Morocco pamphlets into my car and into my, you know, like in front of me, then maybe that's a little more manipulative, right? Mm, that's sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> that's very sneaky. <laughs> Oh, it's so it, not like it's it's hard, but it definitely does take work to function from an authentic place. And and when I first met you, I kind of I, I kind of had that feeling from you, but we never hung out like we not really kind of like in a group. But this is like our first one on one. That conference. hurts my soul a little bit, Veronica, because. <laughs> We did drive. We did drive to a comedy show together. I think you drove. Really? Um, we going, yep. Because I was on your way, and you picked me up, and I really valued that time together um, <laughs> in the car. You know, before the show and after the show, because comedy is such a lonely experience. It's a lot of driving, yeah. yeah. To get to shows and you know, sitting around, sitting through other comic sets before you get up, and it's a very lonely experience. And so to connect deeply with you on that car ride was so special to me. And I, I remember it very clearly. Wow. What, okay. We could go a little bit further than an hour. You have to describe like, what, what did I say? I don't remember this at all. <laughs> uh, what? We, no, you have to tell the story because I don't remember this. You, I, uh, entertain me. What, what happened? What did we talk okay. about? <laughs> Well, I don't remember the specifics of much of the conversation. It was more, I remember feeling deeply connected to you. Mm. And some of the specifics were, you know, you opened up about how you were a virgin. And I think you were 25, give or take, at the time. Yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah, like 20. Um, more like, well, I started comedy. I got into recover, yeah, recovery oh. when I was 27. I start, 27, I started um, taking classes at the comedy college. So... How old were you in 2009? 2009. I must have been um, 30-ish. 30. Maybe yeah. 30. 30, and 31. So, so certainly it's you know well above the average age yeah. of your virginity. So that was a very interesting uh, concept. And so you shared a little bit about that. And um, not a ton. You shared a little bit about recovery. Uh, not a ton. But it, again, it was... It was more the feel of feeling connected to you that I remember than the specifics of the conversation. Mm. And it was a decade ago, so it's you know the, the memories, <laughs> the memories have definitely faded on the specifics. But like I've said earlier, you know, feeling is so important in life, and I, the the feeling I had for much of that was this: oh, I'm feeling connected to this human right now. Oh, oh, lovely. <laughs> Even though I don't remember it, I'm glad you remember it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, we went to the East Bay together. And if you said the name of the room, I would remember it. But it was a, it was like a banquet hall. And we did comedy over there. And Tommy T's? No, it wasn't Tommy T's. It wasn't Bunjo's. Um, it was just a random banquet hall. And I know I performed with Jeff Applebaum there. But I don't know if it was that same show. Um, yeah, again, it's not a, it's not an important detail, but I, I definitely oh, the, remember. Oh, maybe the Continental Club. Perhaps that sounds certainly. If it wasn't that, it was something like that. It was like a that, big that, lobby space in a hotel. Yeah, that was kind of like a lobby. That club yeah. was like you know really happening during the '30s and '40s. I wanna I wanna say. Oh, um, okay. So that that might be that might be it because it definitely had a banquet hall kind of layout. Layout, yeah. Oh, rad. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I it, it's so weird. Like I um, I don't. I used to be known for like having a really good good memory. I and I I remember a lot. But lately, I don't know if it's COVID or maybe I I'm hopping on to a timeline where that life. I'm hopping onto another timeline. And so, I don't know, if you want to get meta for a little bit, um, this new timeline that I'm on, it's not like I, I all my memories from my past life, I don't, rem like, remember. Like, I, I don't remember details. Like, they're fading. It's not like I'm having a mental thing or anything like that. It's just, like, 
you know, when you're jumping, in my experience, jumping from one timeline to another timeline, the old timeline, however you were living in that, your, your paradigm, those memories that you collected in that timeline will fade. Not entirely, but you might. For me, I just remember like concepts that I went through, but not exactly like details. So it's so funny that you like... I'm thinking this is our first one-on-one, but you're like, no, we've had, we've <laughs> had a one-on-one before. I'm like, we did. <laughs> you don't okay. remember our emotional affair? <laughs> no, <laughs> I do not. <laughs> was it good? <laughs> it was wonderful. Like I said, I felt very connected to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple things about memory that I'm fascinated with. One is, of course, you're going to remember different details than I'm going to remember. And it doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, I have a bad memory because Veronica remembers these details or Veronica has a bad memory because I remember details that she doesn't. It just means, you know, we remember different things. Another thing about memory is almost every human thinks they have a much better memory than they actually have. We forget the vast majority of things that happen to us in a week kind of like our dreams, right? In a dream, mm, mm-hmm, you wake mm-hmm. up, it's so real. And then by that afternoon, you rarely remember anything about it. And that's actually reflective of our real memory, but we think we remember everything. And then the last thing about memory that I find super engaging is that as you age, a lot of, of research is suggesting the power of, or the ability to forget is actually starts to become increasingly helpful And our brains are not hard drives, but if you just think about the analogy for a second, when you have a fully empty hard drive, you can store whatever you want on there and and not worry about it. But when your hard drive starts to get to the full state, it starts, you start to have to be really careful what memory, like, sorry, what photographs you put, save, what videos Mm -hmm. you save, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. your computer slows down. You know, it just doesn't have available memory to, to shift things around and do its, its thing. And our brains aren't computer hard drives. But with that analogy, there is, you know, when you're a child, it benefits you to remember as much as possible. And we have all these memory games and we really tell kids it's important to remember. But then no one's coming at us when we're in our 50s, 60s, and 70s and saying, hey, actually, we're going to teach you some games on how to forget things because, uh, you know, it actually is going to help your thinking, your cognitive abilities to start forgetting some stuff. And um, that's a fascinating area of research to the point that some researchers are finding ways that help you forget things so that you can have a better imagination, more creativity, uh, so that you have room for more modern memories so they're not just all from your childhood and 20s so that you start having memories more from your uh, later life. Um, So memory is one of those engaging things. And it sounds to me, sorry, one of those engaging topics for me. And it sounds to me like you have a healthy relationship with memory where you called it timelines. And I'm assuming what you meant by timelines is kind of phases in life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that earlier phase where you and I hung out, that's something that you've let go. Yeah. And far from thinking that that's a bad thing, I think, oh, that's quite healthy that Veronica is shifting her mental um, memory and focus on more what's going on right now. And she's allowing herself to sort of let go of things that happened literally a decade ago (laughs) that, yeah, although I had this feeling of connectivity, you know, I don't remember the details. How important is it to remember that? And a lot of research is suggesting, well, yeah, the older you get, the more valuable it becomes to figure out how to let go of memories. Mm, mm. Good point. Thank you for sharing about your memories, and I'm <laughs> truly not hurt. I, I meant that as a joke about my yeah, soul being I, know. <laughs> I got I got the joke. I know you were kidding. <laughs> um, so on that on that note, how can people find you? Are you, are you on Twitter or Instagram? Uh, no, I'm not on Twitter or Instagram, but I have created a YouTube channel called Wellbeing Thunderstorm, and it is mostly about different aspects of well-being, financial, physical, emotional, and mental, uh, as well as behavioral, um, just the different aspects of well-being. And I call it a thunderstorm because to me, well-being is less like a journey where it's linear and more like a thunderstorm where 
like lightning pops out of nowhere and then thunder and you've got rain and wind and it's all kind of coming at you at random seeming times. And that's how I think of well-being. You know, oh, suddenly I have to focus on my emotions for a little bit. Oh, now is a moment where I need to really be physical and, and take care of my body. Or, oh my gosh, my finances, I haven't paid attention to them for, you know, two days. So I need to sort of put some focus on my finances. And so it's more like a thunderstorm. And that YouTube channel is just devoted to that. And uh, then, yeah, I just have a Facebook page, like I think most humans <laughs> these days. <laughs> but that's that's devoted to my personal life and nothing to do with the well-being work that I'm interested in. Cool. Yeah, I'll put the YouTube link on the show notes for sure. Oh, fantastic. I'll, yeah. I'll email that to you. Yeah. And for those who are, um, they could find me uh, on my website, www.vcomedy.com. That's V-E-E-C-O-M-E-D-Y.com. And just go to that website and the links to my Twitter and Instagram are on there at well as well and if you like this podcast you can uh, subscribe give it five stars on apple Podcasts, spotify anchor or wherever you get your podcasts subscribe it helps the podcast to keep going uh, thank you again so much sam for being on the podcast thanks veronica for letting me share all my ideas about these topics i i love this this is very engaging for me Thank you. All right. Uh, be well, everyone. Carrying sweet rain.